0: Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save
1: $500. Buy six, save 1000 Buy a dozen, save 2000 bucks by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good
1: afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. The thing about tweets, for those of you who use Twitter or follow things on Twitter, soon to perhaps be owned by Elon Musk. That's a story that maybe we'll talk about a little bit later on. But the thing about tweets is, because they are spontaneous reactions to things, sometimes they they don't age well. You think okay, this is this is a really good point, and then you put it out there, and then two hours later, something happens, and it kind of um, it makes the one the thing that you sent out two hours ago. All right, it it sort of relo, uh, renders it um, moot at best, and sometimes maybe incorrect. Then every once in a while, there's tweets that you send out that kind of nail it. So if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty, I I think I kind of nailed one yesterday. I'm watching the baseball game. It's on ESPN, and it's the Brewers playing Philadelphia. You knew it was going to be an interesting game because the home plate umpire was a guy named Angel Hernandez. If you follow baseball, Angel Hernandez has routinely been viewed as— If not the worst umpire in baseball, one of the two or three worst umpires in baseball. And one of the big things, for those of us who love the game and follow the game, one of the big mysteries has been, how could Angel Hernandez be an umpire since 1991? He's been an umpire for 30 years. Now, I personally believe that sometime in the early 1990s, there must have been some really, really wild party that... Uh, for example, a, a lot of the people who now run baseball attended, and they must have done some really, really embarrassing things, you know, like dressing in uh, clothes of the opposite sex or, or whatever, and there must be pictures. And somehow Angel Hernandez has gotten copies of those pictures, because short of really, really embarrassing pictures, you can't figure out how this guy could have been able to keep his job. And and it's not just like one game. He is uniformly uniformly awful and and not only is he uniformly awful he's got this sort of arrogance he he is he's cuban cuban american and he's filed at least two separate lawsuits against major league baseball because they won't let him work the playoffs and he's alleging it's because of discrimination when the the real question is why why is he still behind home plate. Why are you letting him go out on the field in, in the first place? And I assume they're just kind of hoping he's 61 years old. They're, they're figuring that if they fire him, well, he's going to file another lawsuit claiming discrimination or retaliation or whatever. So they're just letting him limp along. So anyhow, I'm watching the Brewers game against Philadelphia yesterday. And once you see Angel Hernandez behind the plate, everybody knows it's going to be one of those kind of games. In the, in the top of the second inning, the Brewers catcher Jose Narvaez is is at the plate, and Hernandez is the home plate umpire. He calls him out on a pitch that wasn't close. I mean, it it just it it wasn't close. It almost hit him, and they call strike three, and and that's it. And there's kind of this shrug that oh, it's Angel Hernandez. Well, so I sent out a tweet that said it's only the bottom of the second inning in the Brewers Phillies game, and I'm again reminded that home plate umpire Angel. Dumpster fire on the diamond Hernandez is absolutely the worst umpire in baseball, and that's saying something. So I send out the tweet and stuff, and then I continue to watch the game. And as bad as that call was in the second inning, top of the second inning, it, it got worse. And and it wasn't biased against the Brewers. The The calls against the Phillies were terrible. The calls against the Brewers were terrible. As a matter of fact, if anything, the ESPN commentators just—I mean, they they were talking about it because— I understand it, it's sometimes it, it's tough to make these calls and things like that, but it was just horrible. And again, it, it wasn't horrible about one side or the other. It it wasn't it wasn't close. And then what happened, bottom of the ninth inning, Josh Hader pitching, the Brewers are head one to nothing. Second guy up is, you know, Kyle Schwarber, who's one of the, the stars of the Philadelphia Phillies, and on a two two pitch that God bless Josh Hader. It's not close. <laughs> I mean it's it's outside and down and and they call he calls him out. And it was so funny because if you watch Hader, Hader kind of turns his back to the umpire, but the camera's got him, and Hader's got a you-know-what-eating grin on his face because he, he knows that that was just a horrible call. Kyle Schwarber goes nuts, and you've probably seen the, the video of this. I mean, he throws down his bat, he throws down his hat, and then he, helmet, and then he's, he's jumping on the plate, and it's funny. He's, he's, he's making things low high, inside, outside. He points to the Brewers' dugout. He points to the Philadelphia dugout. He says, Every, I mean, everybody knows. And he's like, everybody knows that this is awful. We know it. They know it. You know, it's just absolutely terrible. And Then, of course, he, he gets tossed. And now this is one of the big stories today. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. You know, Fans invest a lot in this, whether it's not just the money to go to the games or to watch the games. Obviously, advertisers invest a lot. The players invest a lot in this. I mean, this is their career. This is their livelihood. And of course, you know, wins and losses are are a big deal. When you have umpires that are just honestly, completely and totally incompetent, if you're not going to get rid of them. I think what happens is you end up selling—you really diminish the the game. And I understand that everybody, every umpire is human. You can make a bad call and things like that. But this is one of these things, from a baseball perspective, to have a guy like this behind home plate is an absolute embarrassment, which makes me, again, raise this question about— wouldn't it be a lot better off to just take that human element out of it? You can call it the Angel Hernandez rule, and you can put in the computerized ball and strike thing and let it make the calls. Our number, 855 616 1620, which is the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, all's well that ends well. If you're a Brewers fan yesterday, they ended up winning. But if you listen to that game or particularly watch the game, it was an absolute joke. And by joke, I don't mean a funny joke. I mean a joke as the way the thing was officiated. And if you're not going to commit yourself to getting rid of the incompetent umpires, wouldn't the game be better off if you went to, again, that computerized ball and strike system so you'd you have at least a better chance of getting it right? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I don't think that... The, the calls last night were, were biased one way or the other. I just think that you've got a uniformly bad umpire who was making uniformly bad calls, and it was on display for the entire nation to see in an ESPN televised game. I don't... if If I'm if i'm major league baseball i'm rob madfred i'm sitting in my you know exalted office in new york going we got to do something a- about this because this this is an embarrassment and if you're not going to if you're not going to get rid of the people who are clearly incompetent well then maybe you need to just go look at the idea of let's take the human element out of it let's go back and let's let's have uh, the computers calling balls and strikes 855-616-1620 dave in brookfield dave you're on wtmj
2: Hi Jeff I uh, yeah well, I watched the game last night and i, I my, my wife and I we were watching the weekend. we couldn't believe it i mean every every day they, you know they are kind of bad balls and strikes by the umpires but last night I said this guy is horrendous i've never seen it as bad I mean he was calling ones that were there were strikes he was calling balls and he was calling balls that were strikes it, it was i mean they were out by two three inches you know uh, you know our arch- our I pitcher, have. you know, he got 13 strikeouts. He set a record. Well, but uh, I don't know if he would have otherwise. He had about uh, five, five or six strikeouts that were the third strike well, that the
0: umpire called. It, it is no, no,
1: and I understand, Dave. Thanks for calling. I mean, look, and and I understand that there, there's always. There's going to be the human element, and you know, there's going to be close calls that go the other way. But but th- last night, it, th- these like you're saying, these were not close calls. And I'm trying to think if I'm a major league baseball player, and and I'm my livelihood depends on you know the number of hits I get, how well I do at the plate, those sorts of things. And and it does. And then you've got the huge fan base that's there. And you know, if there's clearly, uh, and, and again, I. I I'll use the example of the break that that you know Josh Hader got that the third called the called third strike in the bottom of the ninth inning. It wasn't close. Everybody knew it wasn't close, and they ring the guy up, which is what causes Kyle Schwarber to go you know ballistic. But it it, it was an ongoing pattern. It wasn't just like okay the guy missed one call and and this is. It's not unusual. Um, Jeff, I've been watching Hernandez blow calls for years and believe the only profession that he could get allows that kind of frequency is a weatherman. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, at least with the weather, you've got the computer models that say, you know, because it's a 50% chance of rain, heads it'll rain, tails it won't. In this case, again, it, if, if Major League Baseball isn't going to do do away with the, the bottom 25% of the umpires in any given year and, and move up people to replace the incompetent ones, then it seems to me just in fairness of the game, you, you, you've got to go to something else, which is maybe, you know, go into the electronics. Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, Jeff. How
1: are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think?
2: First of all, he is the worst umpire in the league, bar none. So let me start with that. Um, Second of all, um, I wouldn't want to see the uh, human element of the game go away. I know you mentioned that with the uh, previous caller. Um, but they do need a Hernandez rule. And that rule would be <laughs> once you make a certain amount of egregious, horrible calls, you are fired. And they have to sign that when they become an umpire, saying that if they make a certain amount. And he surpassed it so much that uh, the rule, he would have been fired 10 years ago. Well, I, so, got yes, it, I right. think they need to get rid of
1: Yeah, no, thanks. And right. And and, and again, I mean, I I appreciate that there is that that human element there. I got to admit, I sort of like the replay thing because I like the idea of getting it right. And I think they've gotten better at that and getting the decisions that that are out faster because you want to end up, you know, ultimately with the the right decision. And I, I think umpires... Most umpires generally make the right decision, but you've got some bad ones, and m- maybe again it, it's fear of litigation. Maybe you know when Angel Hernandez sued him. I think 2015 was his first lawsuit, saying you're not letting me in the playoffs. Well, thank God they're not letting him in the playoffs. I mean the guy the guy should not be on the field, but at some point maybe that's maybe now he, he's insulated. Maybe they're afraid to take any sort of discipline against him because there'll be another lawsuit or whatever. All, all I know is if I was rec- if I was representing Major League Baseball and. Some sort of lawsuit after they filed him, all I would have to do is go back and pull the game film from last night that went across the nation. And this wasn't some locally televised game. This was something that goes across the nation and show one call after another. And it's not like it was just one call. It was a ton of calls. And I guess I just think it's not fair. It's not fair to the fans. It's not fair to the players. It's not fair to the teams. It's not fair to anybody to have people that are so obviously incompetent that are in these sorts of positions. And I understand you can say, well, it's, it's only a game, but then if you're not going to have, if you're not going to have the best of the best in major league baseball, then, then, then why even bother? I mean, why bother with this at all? Pete in Waukesha, Pete, you're on WTMJ.
2: Yeah, Jeff, uh, two things. I think first thing you ought to do is take that box off the TV, that white box around there. That's what's starting all this stuff. Before umpires used to call and everybody knew it, that everybody, every once in a while there would be a bad call. Take that damn box off the TV and never, ever, ever get rid of the human element. Okay. I, coach, I coached and I and I umpired for a while. You're going to make a bad call every once in a while. The team will get on you. The parents get on you. It's part of the game, so to speak. Well, but
1: what about and when I, you have I'm an umpire sure. that consistently makes bad calls over and over and, and over then, again?
2: And then what? Then what they got to do is take them out for a while and send them back to school,
1: well, or if fire you, them. If you going to, or fire yeah,
2: them, did you say you're going to take twenty five, twenty five percent of the umpires every year and, and change them?
1: Yeah, take the bottom
2: twenty you know percent.
1: Yep, take the bottom twenty percent, the worst, the worst twenty percent in where, Major League and where Baseball. Where get? And where are they get? I'm going to bring. Where the, are they going to get the new? Ones I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring the best twenty percent up from AAA. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and start all. And start all over. Well, well, no, th- no, sending but, these guys back. Well, if you want, I mean, okay, I I understand if if you want to defend like incompetence, that that's that's okay, <laughs> but I, I I think that you can always do better than that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I don't think there's anything wrong in any particular business. Matter of fact, in in real life, that's typically what happens. Maybe it's not twenty percent, but you know, let let's take a business that's largely sales related. I don't know the bottom ten percent of performers. I don't think it would be unusual to find businesses kind of weed those out. Let's say, all right, you're, you're you've got a hundred salespeople, and you've got you know your top ten, your top twenty, those bottom ten percent. Yeah, they're going to be put on performance improvement programs, and if they don't get better, yeah, they're they're going to be shown the door. That's the way the the real world works. Yeah, I do the same thing when it comes to Major League Baseball or something like that. You know, you you want to always if you've got people that are consistent bad, and maybe 20% is too high, then 10% or whatever, but you, you've got to constantly, instead of simply saying, okay, you've got people that are doing an incompetent job, let's just run them out there year after year, and let's try to pretend there's not a problem. Well, I, I think there 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 is a, a problem, and some people are better at stuff than, than others, and yeah, I I would have that transfer I, again. I I don't know why you want that human element. To me, you, you'd, I'd rather have it right. And the question is, can you get the computer system to a point where you're getting it right? But as long as they're able to get it right, I, I'd prefer getting it right to certainly having missed calls in key areas. Which is why I think replay, as a general rule, works. But I don't. I challenge anybody to watch what happened last night and explain to me how Major League Baseball can let something like that happen. And Yesterday, the Brewers ended up winning. Good for them. But next time, that guy could be behind the plate and he could be missing stuff right and left, and it could cost the Brewers a game or your favorite team a game. I mean, how much incompetence can you put up with? Like I say, I think he's got pictures. Back with more in just a minute. One of our texters makes the point, again, we had a caller who was just appalled at my suggestion that, okay, maybe, you know, every year the the bottom 10% of the umpires or 20% of the umpires, you should, I don't know, get rid of them. And then where would you get the replacements? Well, you you bring up the, the top 10 or top 20%, the best from the, the great minor leagues, you know, the AAA level and our Caller was just kind of appalled at that. Oh, how would you get rid of the people like that? And one of our texters made the point about, let's think about airline pilots. You know, and you, all right, let, let's, let's take that worst 10% of airline pilots, the ones that everybody, the Angel is of the sky, and everybody knows that. All right, would you rather have Southwest or United or Delta or JetBlue or whatever, would you rather have them take that, that bottom 10% and say, you know what, we're— we're going to encourage you to pursue a career somewhere else, and then we're we're going to bring in another 10%. Would you rather have him that, or would you rather have him, again, continue to allow the Angel Hernandez of United Airlines to continue to fly planes? I, I'm voting on the new pilot. I'm just saying. A couple of listeners are reminding me of what, what what's, what's the old saying, you know, what, what do you call the person who graduates last in his or her uh, medical school class? doctor. Well, you know, you're saying you should get rid of the worst 10% of umpires or salespeople or whatever. You know, they're still doctors. But my response was, yeah, but once you start practicing medicine in a hospital, my guess is that you're going to be weeded out pretty quickly if you're incompetent, especially once the malpractice suits start coming in. So yeah, it's like, okay, you've made it to the major leagues. If you are the Angel Hernandez of your particular hospital, my guess is you're not going to last too terribly long because, you know, you you will be doing harm. Now, again, it's only a Major League Baseball game, so maybe we can put up with incompetence. But my question would be, why? Hey, a quick breaking news story for people who have been following this. The uh, New York State Attorney General um, has been conducting a civil fraud investigation into Donald Trump and to Trump-related businesses. The investigation centers around whether or not the Trump organization or individuals in the Trump organization inflated, um, you know, filed false and misleading statements with banks and things like that, claiming values of their assets were were greater than they really were in order to get loans. I mean, that that's the bottom line of this. I I, I personally don't think that this is ultimately. Going to be successful. I'm not saying they might not bring actions, but I think it's it's a long shot simply because the, these loans normally, when you when you commit fraud to get a loan, it's because you you wouldn't qualify otherwise, and normally the loans go bad, and so you know you've got a lender that's that's left holding the bag, and the lender is saying, hey, I I you know if I would have known the true numbers here, I wouldn't have made the loan. In the case of, of all these Trump dealings. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the loans didn't go bad, so there's really no loss that's out there, and that that makes it a much much tougher case. It's why I think the Manhattan District Attorney has at least thus far taken a pass on any sort of criminal stat prosecutions, because even if they believe that some of the numbers that were submitted might have been inflated, they, they nobody lost any money and it, it's much tougher to, to sell that case to a grand jury or to you know a jury in a trial. So I, I don't know that I think anything's going to come of it, but they're going after former President Trump very aggressively. Anyhow, the latest development is a New York judge today held Donald Trump in contempt of court and fined him $10,000 a day for what the judge said was his failure to comply with a subpoena related to this civil fraud investigation. Um, This New York circuit, they call them state Supreme Court justices. But what that is, that's like a circuit judge. That's like a Milwaukee County circuit judge um, said that Trump hadn't complied with an earlier order to hand over documents requested by the subpoena. The Trump organization says they they don't think that they should have to do this. In any event, the judge has fined him $10,000 a day holding him in civil contempt. My guess is that there will be an appeal of it. But um, clearly, this whole thing has kind of been ratcheted up and the the New York authorities versus Donald Trump is not going anywhere. All right, there is a case that is being argued in the United States Supreme Court today that I think is going to ultimately redefine the whole concept of what we call separation of church and state, which really doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Um, The 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 Constitution relates to the Establishment Clause, and the Establishment Clause says that you know the government cannot create a national a national religion, or government can't endorse one religion over a- another, and, and that whole notion has generated into the whole concept of separation of church and state. And and again, it, the Establishment Clause doesn't say that; it says you can't create a national religion, and you can't endorse one religion over another. Which brings me to the story of a 52-year-old former football coach from Bremerton, Washington. His name is Joseph Kennedy. And he got into—he was a Marine. He was a Marine for 20 years and um, got out of the Marine Corps and became a high school football coach at at this public school, Bremerton, Bremerton, Washington. Um, He— he, his story is that he started, you know, watching, you know, watching a, a football movie on TV, and as part of that, he kind of became—I don't know—he sort of, he said, he had sort of this awakening um, of the role of, of God in his life. So what he started doing, and this goes back four or five, six years, is he started after a game was over. He would walk to midfield, and he would take a knee, and he would say a prayer. And he would, in the course of the prayer, I mean, he he would, you know, essentially, you know, thank God for the game and nobody getting hurt and things like that. But, you know, that's that's what he would do. It wasn't an organized sort of thing. It was something that he would do. He would go out there, and he would take this knee. Well, it became known that he was doing this. And so what started to happen is several of his players would go out there, and they would accompany him. It wasn't mandatory. It wasn't required. But he would go out. He would take a knee, and they would kind of surround him, and, and he, would, he would say a prayer while he was kneeling down. Well, then what happened is players on the opposing team started realizing that, that this is what they're doing. It's after the game, he's going out, and he's not really leading them in prayer, but they're surrounding him, and they are, I guess, arguably praying with him after the game. Well, this then started to get more attention. As a matter of fact, one of the local coaches on the other team said, man, I think this is really cool that this guy is going out at the 50-yard line and taking a knee, and he's, he's saying a prayer you know, after the game. So... Word of this got out. The school board then became alarmed. The school board said, well, we're, we're worried that he's, I don't know, might be forcing or coercing these kids in, into prayer in violation of separation of church and state. And, and his response was, no, nobody's making these kids pray. I, I'm, I'm walking out, and they are accompanying me, but th- that's the decision that they are making. So the school board told him, you got to knock it off. We, we don't want you going out, taking a knee at the 50-yard line, and, and saying a prayer because, well, we think this might be a violation of church and state. And he said, well— no I, I i'm not leading the kids i'm not it's not an organized prayer I as a public employee have the right to, to do this are you telling me that I can't sit at my desk and and say if i was if I'm a science teacher or whatever are you telling me that I can't sit at my desk after class ends for the day and and say a prayer thanking god for getting through the day and they're saying well no we, we don't know that we could think of that but in this particular case we're worried that you've got these kids that are coming out and they might be you know, following your lead. All right. So what ended up happening is he they told him you can't do it. He refused to stop doing this. He was suspended with pay, ultimately ended up losing his job. This case has been working its way through the court system. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is out of California, a very, very liberal court, um, voted very, very narrowly that the school was within its rights to fire him. And now the Supreme Court has taken up this case. So this is going to be argued today about whether or not, as as a public employee, you have the right, under facts like this, you have the right to go out and, and say a prayer. Um, one of the arguments is if he had gone out at, half, at at the end of the game and taken a knee to express his solidarity, for example, with the Black Lives Matter movement— Nobody would have questioned his ability to do that. But because he goes out, takes a knee, and says a prayer, the school says, you can't have your job. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accunate mortgage talk and text line. All right, this, this is not a teacher or a coach requiring the kids to pray with him or her. This is at the end of the game, the coach says a prayer, the kids follow him and they choose to to join in but they're not required to 8556161620 i think the supreme court is going to say this is okay matter of fact i think most observers think the supreme court is going to think this is okay what do you think under circumstances like this should the coach have been fired 8556161620 my answer is not just no but heck no what do you think we discuss in just a moment the countdown to the draft is on, and we're doing it big with a Draft Night Megacast on April 28th. That's Thursday from 7 to 11 p.m. Join Gabe so Greg Matzik, Brian D., and Jason Wildy as they break down all things draft during round one. Plus, they'll be joined by Tausch, Chewie, and other football voices throughout the show. The Draft Night Megacast, April 28th from 7 to 11 p.m. right here on 620 WTMJ. All right. 799-855-616-1620 um, is the number. All right. So this is what the coach does. Walks out after the game, takes a knee, says a prayer. A number of the players started following him. A number of players on the other team started following him. School board got all upset about this and ultimately ended up firing him. Supreme Court's going to hear this case today. My guess is the Supreme Court is going to say there's no problem with this. The school tells the coach, his name is Kennedy, that he was free to engage in religious activity, including prayer. Well, that's nice of him, but it must be physically separate from any student activity, and students may not be allowed to join in such activity and must not be outwardly discernible as religious activity. So in other words, you could go out after the game, kneel down, and again, do that as a show of support for Black Lives Matter, and it's okay. But if you kneel down and thank God for making sure None of the players got hurt during the game. That's impermissible. All right. Try explaining that one. 855 That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Jeff, um, I'm I'm guessing parents complained. Well, the school board was afraid they were going to get sued. One parent said, my child is an atheist. But he decided to participate because he was concerned that he might not get as much playing time if he didn't. There is, by the way, no evidence in the record that anybody was ever discriminated against, denied playing time, et cetera, by anybody who decided to just go in and start taking their shower as opposed to start going out um, at half court. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, I think it's ironic that the only religion people have an issue with when it's displayed in public is Christianity. Well, I think there's an element of this. Jeff, I one hundred percent agree with you, especially seeing as he doesn't require anyone to join him. Right, that that's a right, that's a different story. And to me that's the key element of this. This idea that and and here's the broader point. This interpretation of of the law essentially says that if you are a public employee, you have no right to express your view of religion in public, at least um, in anything connected with, with your job. And I just don't believe the establishment clause goes anywhere near that far. This would be a different situation if he would say, all right, this is the deal after the game You're all going to have to come out, and you're all going to have to join me at the 50-yard line, and you're all going to have to kneel down, and you're all going to have to say a prayer. That's a completely different thing because then, arguably, you have the school official who is compelling the prayer. But in this case, the idea that the school employee walks out after the game is over and says this prayer and other people decide they want to join him voluntarily, that's really what's going to get you fired? I mean, that's really what's going to, you know, get you fired. 855-616-1620. Uh, Jeff, one, you can't prevent somebody from praying without invisible, with an invisible anti-prayer force field. Um, yes. Two, the Christian Bible says you're not supposed to pray in public. I have no idea what that means. Um, people pray in public all the time. Jeff, I think the Supreme Court will rule. The termination is okay, although I don't agree. Now, I, Well, you, you can go broke trying to guess what the United States Supreme Court or any court is going to do. There were four justices a couple years ago who had all sorts of trouble with some of the convoluted approaches we've had to separation of church and state, and now you've got some more new judges on that court, I I think this one probably—my prediction is it probably gets struck down six to three, recognizing that the Establishment Clause, again, just having an individual public employee say a prayer does not constitute an endorsement— of, of any particular religion by the government itself. I mean, don't people have the the right to do that? Jeff, did anybody even bother asking the players if they were forced? Yeah, I mean, no, again, no, th- there's apparently one parent who complained and said, well, we're atheists, and my kid felt that he, he was compelled to do this. I, I mean, how, how do you control how people are going to be, you know, how do you— um, feel about how, you know, people are going to, you know, deal with this. But if somebody, well, I feel compelled about that. Well, okay, if there's no rule, what can you do? Jeff, parents may have complained, but that doesn't mean you have to submit to their will. Prayers in public by the government is not frowned upon. A, fra- a prayer is said before the inauguration of a president. A prayer is said before Congress convenes. Um, yes, yes, those are all True. Jeff, student-led prayer is allowed. He should have asked a player to lead it. Well, I, no, because then, arguably, it would be him compelling this. Yes, students can decide on their own if they want to pray. But the fundamental question is, the guy's a football coach, all right? Should, does he not have a right to pray in public? I, I mean, d- does he not have a right to do that? And again, does it does it make any difference? What if what if this is in a a teacher's lounge? Do you not have do you not have a right to let's say read the Bible in the teacher's lounge? Or let's say you're sitting in the cafeteria at lunch and you're reading the Bible and a student goes up to you and says, "Hey, hey coach, you know what what are you reading?" And so I'm I'm reading, you know, I'm I'm reading from the Bible. Well, you know what 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 is what does it say? Do, do you not have a right to read that in response to this? I mean, is this the government establishing a religion? And the answer, I think, is pretty clearly no. Jeff, does this mean he could uh, pray in the lunchroom before eating? I, I don't know. I-, I mean, you would think that the school board would then say maybe no. You you can't say a, a public prayer. You can't, like, um, voice a prayer before eating because somebody might hear you and they might get those religious cooties or whatever that's going to be. I- I'm just telling you, this is— I think that the courts have gotten the whole idea of separation of church and state, that they've gotten it wrong for for a long time. And this is going to be a chance where I think the Supreme Court cleans it up a a little bit and tries to recognize that, again, the Establishment Clause, which says government cannot create a religion and government cannot endorse a particular religion— doesn't mean that public employees give up their right to practice their religion, as so long as they're, they're they're doing so under certain conditions. If you're requiring the kids to do it, it's a different story. But that's not the case. In any event, this is getting argued today in front of the Supreme Court. I think even the um, even the the folks who are kind of like, let's let's just, again, continue the separation of church and state argument. I think they recognize that they have an uphill battle on this one because the facts really aren't in their favor, but we'll know pretty soon.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. One of the reasons, um, if you're listening to the program, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner620 because particularly over the weekends, a lot of times there's things that happen, and I I share my reactions, and and for whatever reason, because of the crush of other events or whatever, it doesn't necessarily get on the program, and I always walk away with like stacks and stacks of material that I wish I had more time to talk about. So one of the things I do is I use Twitter for that, and there's several new postings up, but one thing that I did want to comment on is a follow-up to something I mentioned last week. University School of Milwaukee is a. I, I think a lot of people would argue it is probably the premier um, elementary and secondary school in in this area. It is very very expensive. I mean, I think if you're sending a third grade or fourth grade, it's something like twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars, and it's it's again. You get a high-quality education. I did not go to university school. As I said, um, when I was in law school, I worked part-time there for two years. I was like their their debate coach, and it was a part-time sort of thing. But it's, it's a very, very good school, and it's very, very well regarded. If anything, and this is what struck me about this story when it first broke, if anything, the people that I know who have kids or grandkids or who went to university school themselves, that the biggest beef I hear about university school now is that it has become obsessed with political correctness and the, you know, bending over backwards to, to try to avoid anything that wouldn't be PC, which is why I was surprised when this, this matter got all this attention. Uh, Michelle Obama's brother and his wife lived in Milwaukee for a time. I don't believe they live here anymore. They had a couple kids who were in elementary school at university school. Those kids were asked to leave, and they have now filed this lawsuit. And they did what everybody does. They they, they called up Good Morning America, and they got an interview with Robin Roberts, which would not have happened, I think, if it wasn't If it wasn't the fact that this was Michelle Obama's brother who's making these complaints, but you got all these sensationalized things and you got the headline "University School discriminates," all this type of stuff, and and I I said in a couple tweets that there's got to be another side to this story, and unfortunately. In the mainstream media, when you get these sensational—you've got, okay, you've got this wealthy, you know, school, and you've got these prominent people talking about how, oh, our, our kids were mistreated, et cetera, discrimination, it's got all the the trappings of a huge sensationalized headline, and a lot of times the the real— Facts then, then kind of get buried. Well, what's been interesting to me is that university school is not going quietly into the good night. In other words, they, they have they are responding to this. Now, of course, they're at a loss because Good Morning America and the, the people that cover this, they, they, they want the narrative to be, you know, rich school, River Hills discriminates against the, these kids. Whether there's any accuracy to that or not. Well, over the weekend, university school came up with a follow-up to the, the media coverage. And I have a link to this. Um, if again, if you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. But it, it's kind of interesting, and I wanted to share it because to me this sort of demonstrates how a particular narrative takes over, and how you get the headlines, and and maybe nobody really pays attention to what the facts are. Okay, so this is what University School says. Dear University School Milwaukee community, Um, this is from the head of school, a guy named Steve Hancock. I write to provide some additional information and context regarding the lawsuit recently brought against University School Milwaukee by a former school family and related comments that they have made through the media. Contrary to what has been alleged, our decision to not renew this family's children was based entirely on the parents' decision to repeatedly engage in disrespectful, demanding, and bullying conduct towards and relating to our teachers and administrators. In doing so, the parents deprived our teachers and administrators of the physically and emotionally safe environment set forth in our mission guiding principles see where I'm this is this is like the PC stuff coming out and blatantly disregarded both our common trust pledge and our parent school partnership such conduct which threatens the collaborative and respectful partnerships upon which our community is built cannot be tolerated so in other words they're saying hey that the problem was with with the parents as part of their media campaign, the family has badly mischaracterized three workshops used la- worksheets used last year in some of our fifth-grade classrooms. In the interest of full transparency, I encourage you to look at these workshops— the first workshop linked here was a Thanksgiving word search used in one classroom. Students were asked to find and circle various words, including the word plantation. Remember, this was this bizarre thing where the parents said, well, there was, they, they, were, they were using the word plantation as if there's some problem with that. Well, what it turns out is this is one of those things that you see where you've got, like, all the the letters, like, in the grids, and you're supposed to find and circle, like, words that are made. You know, sometimes they're forwards, sometimes they're backwards. And one of the many words that were there was plantation. Okay. All right, the second worksheet, linked here, and the third, linked here, Were used during icebreaker activities in various classrooms that followed the winter and spring breaks. Students were asked to find classmates who engaged in various activities during the break, such as played sports, watched a movie, visited another state. When concerns about the content of these workshops were raised by the family, we took these concerns very seriously and engaged with them to better understand their thinking. Ultimately, We did not find the material to be of concern, and we shared this directly with the family. In other words, we don't understand why you have a problem with this. I'm looking right now, and I have a link to this, at the workshop that is apparently controversial. It says, find someone who, winter break, COVID edition— Received socks or underwear as a gift. Started and finished a book. Took a walk outside. Decorated cookies. Visited another state. Got a haircut. It goes on and on. It's all these benign sort of things. But the idea was, okay, we want you to interact with your classmates and go around and ask people what they did on their winter break. And somehow this becomes discrimination. The thing continues. Much has also been made of a simulation that was long ago part of our fourth grade social studies curriculum addressing Wisconsin's role in the Civil War and specifically the Underground Railroad. Many claims and purported descriptions regarding the simulation made in the lawsuit and in the media are completely inaccurate. But, of course, the media doesn't care that they're inaccurate. All they want to do is report the allegations because that's what gets the headline. The simulation ended more than 10 years ago, long before the family students began their enrollment at the school. During it, fourth grade students moved throughout parts of the school to stations where teachers and parent volunteers served in the roles of Underground Railroad conductors, providing guidance on routes to the next safe place stations. Subsequent classroom lessons focused on the importance of Wisconsin's role in the Underground Railroad, which was instrumental in helping enslaved people travel to freedom in Canada. As we did then, we will continue to evaluate and evolve our curriculum in a way that is culturally responsive and respectful. University School Milwaukee is fully prepared to vigorously defend itself against the allegations made in this family's lawsuit, as well as misinformation this family has spread in the media. I reiterate my previous statement that non-renewing the enrollment of the school family is a last resort option, but one that is needed to be taken in this particular situation, not because of any actions of the students, but because of the actions of the parents. And again, I've got a link to this that's up there, but it's one of the things that's so frustrating to me because you get these sensationalized allegations that are given a national megaphone because of... The reflective celebrity of of the people who are making them. I mean, this is Michelle Obama's, you know, brother and sister-in-law. So it gets attention that it would otherwise not got gotten. You've got the sensationalized stuff, and nobody necessarily cares about at least the other side of of the facts. And it's frustrating because even if this lawsuit gets tossed out, even if it's found to have absolutely no merit at all, that that story is is never going to get the same sort of play that the allegations did. And it's something that again strikes me as just being fundamentally wrong. University School of Milwaukee is, is, I think, by all stretches, an outstanding school. If they've got lesson plans and stuff that are discriminatory or whatever, okay, that that's fine. But nothing that you're seeing here would indicate that. Unfortunately that's going to be lost in the wash of all the sensational allegations. And that's just too darn bad. You know, I was talking last hour about you know, tweets that you send out that, that age well and some that, that don't age well. Sunday morning, woke up and I was just, I, was, I think I was, was watching one of the newscasts on one of the stations or just doing a little bit of just surfing through the net looking at stories. And, and I saw the crime reports from Saturday. And Saturday night, I've got a link to this, this story, uh, two more dead, six more injured in shootings. And this was Saturday. And my comment was, the mayhem continues. Want to bet how many of the shooters have been in and out of the criminal justice system before. So that was the, the tweet I sent out on, on Sunday morning. Well, I, I had no way of knowing that that, th- that tweet was actually an understatement of the situation because over the weekend, three people were killed, including another child. More than 20 were shot. So far this year, and and I I think I'm right on this, although it could be one more, 71 homicides. 71 homicides, and we are not finished with April first arguably nice weekend that that we've had this year and you, you've got 25 plus shootings three people dead which makes you wonder what what's going to happen when it, it gets it gets nicer for a long period of time at this time last year and last year as I repeatedly say, last year was an all-time record for homicides in the city of Milwaukee. There were 193. This time last year, there were 42 homicides. And, and the reason typically the numbers spike up is homicide rates tend to go up in the summer – When it's warm, more people are out on the street. They're staying out longer. Historically, you know, in in the winter, when when it's cold or crummy or whatever, you you don't have as many homicides because people tend to stay indoors. That has not been the case this year. So same time, apples-to-apples comparison, last year, all-time record for homicides. There were 42 homicides this year. 71 homicides. And I, I might be one short, but let's go with 71, not 72. So we are on, right now, a, a pace. And again, th- this is, it's kind of misleading because historically that pace picks up in the summer months. But even if we would just extrapolate our numbers now out through the end of the year, you're on pace for over 220 murders on the streets of Milwaukee, which is Absolutely unthinkable. It's unthinkable that there were 192 years ago. It's unthinkable that there were 193 last year. And it would certainly be unthinkable that there are 200-plus 200 murders, 220. And, and I mean, I, the sky is really the limit with what is going on now once the weather gets nicer. Because, like I say, once the weather gets nicer, the number of shootings and homicides tend to increase, um, again, exponentially. And and so you're looking at what is going on here, and nobody seems to have a good answer. Everybody seems to be appalled by this, appropriately so. Everybody seems to wring their hands and clutch their pearls and talk about this, but nobody seems to have any concrete ideas as to what needs to be done. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I have a multi-part question that I want to discuss. Why is it so bad? And what can be done about this? You know, again, I, I go back to this. When I was a federal prosecutor, I remember when we first hit 100 homicides, and that was in the late 1980s, and it was because back then you had this the surge of crack cocaine, and you had a bunch of street gangs that were going to war over different street corners, and they were shooting at each other, and a lot of times they'd, they'd hit innocent bystanders, and the numbers went up over 100. And I remember we were all appalled at that. How could it be 100? Well, well, now you, you would take 100 as a, as a victory, because we're on pace for probably Double that. 855-616-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Why is this so bad? And what can be done to stop it, to make make the shootings halt? What, What would you do if you were the mayor? What would you do if you had the authority to try to do something? 855-616-1620. I've got a couple ideas. Not sure they're going to be implemented, and it might be too little, way too late, but I've got a couple ideas. I'll share those with you. But this, to me, is unacceptable, and it it disproportionately affects certain areas of the city. I know whenever I talk about the crime rates, I, I get some feedback saying, oh, you're making it sound like Milwaukee is a dangerous city. Yes, Milwaukee is a dangerous city. You know, leave your Hyundai or leave your Kia anywhere on any city street and there's a decent chance that you're going to come back and it's going to be broken into or gone. Now, as far as being murdered, that tends to be concentrated in some different areas of the city, not all over. But still, anybody should be appalled by this. 855-616-1620. Why is the crime rate out of control and what, if anything, can we do to rein it in? We discuss in just a minute. All right, here's a tweet. Jeff, I share your frustrations, but what can we actually do? Now, that is a fair question. 71 homicides and counting on pace for well over 220 right now. And that doesn't include the shootings. That doesn't include the auto thefts. But just the the level of violent crime, the level of murders. And and everybody says, oh, this is unacceptable. This is awful. and, And they're all right. But but I don't hear any ideas as to how you deal with it. And I think the texter makes a point. I fr- share your frustrations, but what can we actually do? Fair question. Why is this happening? And what can we do? I've got a couple ideas, and I will share them. And again, um, um, let me we've got a couple calls on the line, but let me just ask people to hold on through the news because I want to make sure we have enough time to um, hear your ideas. But what do we do? 71 homicides already this year. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Joe in Watertown. Joe, good afternoon.
2: Hey, Mr. Wagner. I just want to let you know I appreciate your show. Um, The murder rate, I think we need to invoke the death penalty, a death for a death. Um, It goes back to Black Lives Matter. It's all lives matter. And strictly, if you're killing your own
0: people, how much sense does that really make?
1: Well, I mean, thanks. I mean, and again, you, you know, this is there's certain you know, parts of the city, for example, where the the numbers are, are worse. But it, it, it is a city-wide problem. There's no question about it. Now, interestingly, Joe, what? here's one of our texts that raises this question. Jeff, do we know the stats on how many of these murderers are repeat offenders? I'm guessing it's most. We need to uh, beef up prison sentences for repeat offenders. So I... I you know that's one of the things that I, I completely and totally agree with. Now, it, so seventy-one homicides and counting, and two hundred plus shootings that didn't result in homicides, but for the grace of God, my guess—and it's just off the top—and we—I don't know how many cases we've cleared already. Probably not that many. But okay, so let's take let's take you know seventy-one homicides. My guess is. Of the people responsible for the shootings, and this is just my guess, but it's probably an informed guess, my guess is that three-quarters of those at least are people that have been through the quote-unquote criminal justice system before. And my guess is probably on on many occasions. I mean, maybe you just wake up one Tuesday morning and you decide today's the day I'm going to go grab a gun and I'm going to go shoot somebody on the street. But that's unlikely. My, My guess is these are people who've been through the criminal justice system and they've been there on multiple occasions. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that, number one, we're not rehabilitating. But number two, it tells you that we are not Whatever the prison sentences that we are imposing, it's not enough to discourage people from engaging in antisocial behavior. You know, I, I get several texts that I, I don't disagree with that there, there's like there's and the it goes back to guns. You know, we've got too many guns that are in the wrong hands, and and I appreciate all that. But my question then is, okay, so what are you going to do unless you're going to seriously say? We're going to have the cops try to go door to door and confiscate everybody's firearms, but to me, that's not the problem because ninety-five, ninety-eight percent of gun owners are not the problem. If you've got, you know, some uh, a handgun in your in your bedroom uh, drawer to protect you, or you, you like to target shoot or whatever, you're not the problem. The problem is the guns are in the wrong hands, and I don't mean to be simplistic about this, but. I would guess, okay, so the 71 homicides, let's say they were all firearm-related. I think they probably were. If I'm right, that three-quarters of the people involved in those shootings at least were people who had been through the criminal justice system. These are people who would be felon in possession of guns. Uh, This would seem seem to me to be something that the left and the right, that we could all agree on, is that people who aren't allowed to have guns – shouldn't have guns. So maybe the the starting point is to the judges, to the district attorneys out there, when somebody who is a felon, not allowed to possess a gun, gets stopped in a car with a gun, maybe instead of slapping them on the wrist and then sending them back out on the street, maybe there there needs to be some accountability, like maybe a minimum mandatory sentence. You're a felon. You're not legally allowed to have the gun. You're caught with the gun. You go to prison for three years or 5 years or pick a note whatever it is but just this idea that we're not going to tolerate people who have no right legally to carry a gun from in fact carrying that gun and this you if you would do that and then get really serious about felons with guns you know at least at the very least you would have those felons with guns off the street for a period of time so they wouldn't be in a position to shoot and kill other people. 855-616-1620. Now, I understand it's complicated, and I understand the frustration that lots of people have with uh, the the uh, proliferation of firearms and all that, and, and I get it. But maybe it starts— by saying that, you know, we're going to get serious about people who aren't supposed to have guns when they have guns, and we're going to punish them, and we're going to hold them accountable. And maybe, just maybe, the message will get out that this is a a big deal as opposed to something that we just look the other way on. Uh, Let's talk to Bert on the South Side. Bert, you're on WTMJ.
2: Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. What do you think?
2: I was just saying that I think, first of all, the police chief and the mayor and some of the higher ups need to get together and they need to look at, you know, where the majority of these gun incidents are happening. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some that are spread out, but I'm sure there's some in certain, you know, neighborhoods or whatever. And maybe have an influx of police on the weekends because it seems like the weekends are the worst. Yeah. Um, And also, I agree with you about there needs to be more consequences. Absolutely. If you're not supposed to have a gun, then you need to go to jail. (laughs) I mean, that's it. Well, you know, and tired of you know slapping people on the wrist for their breaking the law, or take their car, or do something. You
1: know. Well, no, but see, I'm I'm with you as far as see, and this is where I guess one of the frustrations to me is on the one hand, you have a lot of people who who say, well, we got too many guns in our society. OK, I, I, I understand that. But the real problem is you've got too many guns in the hands of people who are not allowed to have guns in the first place, or who don't use those guns in a responsible fashion. But it's more like, like I said, and again, I'm just I'm just spitballing here, but my guess is uh, of these different shooting incidents, you're going to find three-quarters of the people are probably felons, not not all, but th- my guess would be three-quarters of the people that are felons. So why don't we crack down if we say felons aren't supposed to have guns? Why don't we say, we're not going to put you on probation? You know, if if you've been through the criminal justice system, if you are a felon and you're not legally allowed to carry a gun, and then you get caught carrying a gun, boom, there's going to be a significant consequence to you. Now, will that stop all the shootings? No, but at least it will say that we're serious when we talk about trying to get at least criminal guns off the streets. And if you don't do that, um, if you don't do that, well, you're going to just continue to, to see this. Now, there's other, there's, a, there's larger problems as well. And I wish I had an answer for this. You have a generation or maybe multiple generations of, of people who apparently have been raised with the impulse control of a fruit fly, who have no regard for human life at all. I was talking about, my wife was saying, well, why, why are these numbers spiking? And, and it, it does, it is related in some respects to guns, but it's a bigger issue. 20 years ago, You would have people who get into an argument in a bar – Oh, you know, you said something nasty about my girlfriend. Well, how you dare you do this, etc. And what would happen is that the two guys would go outside into the parking lot and they'd get into a fight and they duke it out and one guy would win and one guy would lose and maybe somebody would end up in the emergency room needing a bunch of stitches and a couple teeth are knocked out or, or whatever. Well, nowadays, everybody is carrying guns, including all sorts of people who aren't illegal allowed to have guns. And so when, when you get, hey, he disrespected me or whatever, instead of of we're going to just duke it out. What happens is somebody pulls out a gun and shoots somebody else, and then half the time they go to shoot somebody, they miss the person they're shooting at, and they hit somebody that's just in the vicinity, some poor innocent bystander. Or it's this situation where you know you're driving down the road, and we, we all hear about the road rage things. How many of these stories are out there where you get into the situation where it's like, oh, he cut me off, or he he mean mugged me, he made a nasty look. How dare he disrespect me? I'm going to try to run him off the road. And then the other guy pulls out the gun, and they shoot, and next thing you know, you've got a homicide. It's just—so we have a generation or maybe two generations of people who have no regard for human life, and I I don't know what you do with that. I continue to believe—I continue to believe that the vast majority of people Regardless of what neighborhood we're talking about, what state we're talking about, the vast majority of people are good, decent people. You have, however, a, a certain amoral criminal element that is out there that, again, ha- has no respect for Anybody, no respect for life, et etc, and at least in the short term, we I think have to make a commitment to getting those people off the streets because if you do not get them off the streets, if we think we're doing them a favor, oh Mr. Two time felon, you just got stopped blowing through a red light, and there 's a gun you know next to you, if we just say, "Okay, here, you know go back out on the street, well, you know three weeks later, that person's going to be using that gun, and, and we haven 't made anything better so Big picture, social issues, what's causing this, why we're raising multiple generations of people who have no regard for human life. I I don't claim to know the answer for that, but I do know that we're not making it safer, the community safer for the rest of us by taking people who have demonstrated antisocial behavior and just slapping them on the wrist and sending them back out again. Proof of that? 71 homicides, and counting. Let's talk to Chris in Madison. Hi, Chris.
0: Hi, Jeff. Um, I really think this is a very interesting topic, and I have an insight to share that is, I would have to say, is very rare. I'm a general contractor, and um, a lot of the subcontractors I hire, I I end up getting to know. And uh, we had a project where we needed an epoxy floor system put in, and the crew that came in, I was talking to one guy in particular he was uh uh, hispanic descent and he had uh, all these uh tattoos and it was for let he was a former member of the latin kings and he had all these circular wounds on him and i asked about i thought i thought they were cigar burns but he was executed seven shots he was hit seven times and he survived it and we talked and he said he he goes he was you know he was born in america uh you know, so he's a, always been a U.S. citizen, and he said when you're in prison and you're around a lot of the guys that you can trust and know and you've got food and a place to sleep, mm-hmm. you can at times feel safer than being out on the streets. He never really knew his parents, uh, was raised by the streets, never knew anything else. But this guy, you know, he had to work really hard to turn his life around. He had a little girl, and, you know, he wanted right. to do whatever he had to do To improve her life, he goes. But what he could tell me about prison, and this is about five years ago, mind you, it it really stuck with me. He said, "It's a badge of honor to go to prison if you shoot somebody, and there's really very little incentive to stay out of prison for for a lot of offenders, Mm -hmm. and that it's the same thing. Whether you're in or you're out, you're kind of doing the same thing, and." It's really scary. You either have to make prison so God awful through, say, hard labor or some sort. I don't know what you do. Or somehow the olive branch has to go out and somehow, you know, like people have to put up with the idea that there are people out there that have this mindset. But if they want help, there are people that will help. And it's maybe not easy or profitable for a guy like me to hire somebody it's that comes from such a bad background but i try to do my best to try to give everybody a chance and and talk to them and i I pray
1: with them and no it's chris thanks for calling you know it's interesting you tell that story because oh this is back when when i when i was prosecuting drug dealers We had—it was a very, very high-profile trial. It um, was—we took on the—it was the Brothers of Struggle street gang, and we ended up trying, 20-some people at at once. But it was really this interesting situation because— Many of the, those guys had had been in in prison before, and I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about because you you'd listen to them talk through their lawyers and stuff. and, and prison wasn't a deterrent. Prison was just now, the, the idea for most of us that you're going to be in prison would be just kind of the, this scary, awful thing where you couldn't think of anything would be worse. Well, for for a lot of these guys, prison wasn't a deterrent. Prison was, in many respects, you, you had you had this gang structure. There was an order to your life. You you know, you knew that you were gonna get your three meals a day, you knew that there was uh you know, that this is when you'd work out. There was this order. And I understand that sounds just crazy, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Look, I, I don't I don't claim to have all the answers. I, I and I also understand that you can't imprison your way out of long-term problems. But short-term, we, we've got to do it. And like I say, my guess is the vast majority of these people who are responsible for these homicides have been in and quickly out of the criminal justice system. You've got to turn that around. And if nothing else, maybe it doesn't rehabilitate them, but maybe it protects the rest of us so that when you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off, they don't pull out a gun and shoot you or shoot your spouse or shoot your kids who are riding in the back seat. You know, every once in a while, I'm just amazed at, I don't know, the the things that people try to make into a a big deal. Now, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, being human, I send something out and it's got a typo in it. And and I, I try my best not to do that, but I, but I admit every once in a while i I do. And it's particularly with with Twitter, especially if you're trying to tweet from your phone or something, you know, and you got the big fingers and 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 every so I, I try to read it twice and then just to make sure. But I admit every once in a while, if you would go back and you can read my tweets, you can follow me at Jeff Wagner six twenty, you will find one where there might be a typo or there, there might be a grammatical error. And it's really not that I don't know what the proper grammar is. It's just because I was trying to post the thing. I'm sitting in the front seat of a car. I want to get the thing posted. So I've made a mistake. All right. I admit it. So it generally speaking, though, since that's what most of us do, when I see some of these stories, it's just beyond me. So, Scott Walker, and i there's all sorts of reasons people love Scott Walker, there's all sorts of reasons people hate Scott Walker. So, Walker sends out a tweet. I've got a link to this at Jeff Wagner620 on my Twitter account, and he, he's on a plane. And he says, it's spectacular that Biden's mask mandate on public transportation has come to an end. I hope to frame my mask or something like that. So he he uses this. But the problem is um, he's talking about he means to say he's maskless, that there's people on an airplane, M-A-S-K-L-E-S-S. And... Apparently it's it's autocorrect. I hate autocorrect. Autocorrect, you know, kicks in, and instead of saying maskless, it puts it out as maskless, massless. M A S S L E S S on the airplane. Oh, okay, it, it's a typo or it's autocorrect or whatever. Well, okay, the Twitterverse just goes nuts with people. Well, I mean, he he's massless. Oh, what a moron! You know, he sent this out that he was massless. Nice to be massless on an airplane again. Oh ho ho! And I guess my my note on this whole thing was, I mean really this 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 is what generates the response and this is what you have time for i mean you know we you know joe biden gets a question about the border and he answers about masks on airplanes you know maybe that's something that people should be concerned about as opposed to some former politician who sends out a tweet where okay there's a typo in it really stick around
0: (laughs) Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is The Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I mean, it, it is a fascinating story that we'll probably talk about more tomorrow. Elon Musk has apparently struck a deal with with Twitter, and the agreed upon price was somewhere in the neighborhood of forty three or forty four billion dollars. And he's gonna buy Twitter, and he's already talked about how. Wait, I mean, I understand the thing that he says is he wants to you know promote free speech, and the idea, at least the thinking, is that a lot of the restrictions that Twitter has put on and um, on people that that's that's going to go away. But they're gonna be looking at other things as well, like giving you an alternative if you don't want to see advertising, you can sign up and you can pay three bucks a month or things like that. It's going to be interesting. And I really have to, I want to think about what I think this means for social media moving forward. So we'll probably talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. We alluded to this on, on Friday because there was sort of a premature announcement. Um, so far, there's the leading Republicans running for governor. By the way, at some point in time, we're going to handicap the Democrats running for U.S. Senate. We know that Ron Johnson is going to be the Republican nominee, and there's a handful of Democrats running to challenge him. Um, we know that Tony Evers is going to be the Democrat nominee for uh, governor. So the question is, who who will be the Republican candidate? And for – there's – of course, I, I would have to say, and I continue to believe, the leading candidate, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who has been well, pretty much running for governor since the, the last election, and, and she's been going out and about, and she's been meeting with a lot of the, the Republican interest groups and things like that. She has the endorsement from some very, very powerful organizations, including Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce and things like that. And she's been attending all the the Lincoln Day dinners and the Republican events. And, and as far as institutional Republicans, um, Becky has just a, a lot of support. Now, she's been challenged by Kevin Nicholson, who ran unsuccessfully for Senate Couple of years ago, and who was kind of on the fence. He was saying, "Look, he was going to run for Senate again if Ron Johnson didn't run." But when Johnson announced that he was going to run, he said, "Well, okay, now I'm going to run for for governor." And so you've got Nicholson, and then you've got the the state legislature, who's legislator who who's running on the platform of let's just overturn the results of the 2020 election, which which isn't going anywhere. His name is Timothy Rantham. So uh, those have been pretty much the three candidates. Tommy Tom. Thompson's name was talked about, and last week Thompson announced that at the age of 80 he wasn't going to run for governor again. But the announcement on Friday and now confirmed today is that a businessman, Tim Michaels, who is – his family owns the the Michaels Corporation, which is a huge infrastructure company – Um, Based out of Brownsville, which is in Dodge County, he announced that he was going to get involved in the race. Now he's run a couple times. He ran for Senate against Russ Feingold in two thousand four. Ran a credible campaign, but but lost. He also ran once for state Senate, but he's really been he has not run for office in, in the last two decades. He announces that that he's in the race. He's going to run for governor. Now the one thing, the biggest advantage I think that Michaels has is that he is independently wealthy. So he can pretty much self-finance his campaign. He's already said that he's um, not going to take any sort of uh, special interest money. He's not going to take individual contributions larger than $500, which when when you are independently wealthy, it, it's nice to have that, that ability. But um, but nevertheless, that that's it. He says, look, I'm 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 a business guy. He's running in many respects some of the themes that Ron Johnson used when Ron Johnson got elected twelve years ago. I'm I'm a business guy. This is what my background is. I'm not a politician, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um now the the truth is though that you know Michaels ha, has been a part of what I would call the Republican establishment over the course of the last couple decades. Admittedly, not not as a candidate. But also he he has been active in Republican Party candidate uh, options. Matter of fact, he's been a supporter of Rebecca Clayfish in the past. But now he's getting into the race. And even though his name recognition is probably not that great, there's no question that the ability to spend as much money as you want on your own campaign, and that's what the law allows you to do gives you the ability to, you know, start running ads. As a matter of fact, I think he's already up with an ad buy all over the state. And my guess is that's going to continue. The primary is, I believe, August 9th. So here we are at the end of April. So you've got May, June, July. So you've got, you know, the better part of three plus months in order to get your message out. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, does the entry of Tim Michaels into the Republican race for governor, does it change the dynamic? And, and how does it? Who's going to be the Republican nominee come August 10th? 855-616-1620, which is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And what's, what are your considerations going to be if you're planning to vote in the Republican primary on August 9th? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. So Tim Michaels, businessman from Dodge County, family business is the Michaels Corporation, which is a big infrastructure company. He says he's getting involved in the race for governor. He's been involved in two political races. A candidate lost both of them, but the most recent one was 2004. So where where do we go from now? Who's the big winner? Who's the big loser? How does this um, how does this change the dynamic? All right, let me give you a couple of texts before we go to the phones, lines. Uh, Jeff, it'll be nice to have a candidate who isn't sucking up to the Stop the Steal folks. Rebecca has been very disappointing in that respect. Jeff, the entry of Tim Michaels means that you can put a fork in the Cleefish campaign. She is uh, 2018 Leah Vukmir 2.0. She has a ceiling of 45% in the general election. Jeff, I'm happy that Michaels is in the running. I went to college with his siblings in the 80s, and I know he comes from a solid family with a solid work ethic, I think it changes the dynamic because we need some fresh ideas on the Republican side, and I feel Michaels is a more common-sense candidate with less partisan thinking, although I do like Rebecca Clayfish, I feel that he would be a breath of fresh air. Jeff, easy answer for me. It's Rebecca Clayfish. She has the best chance to beat Governor Evers. Um, let's see. Jeff, Um, let's see. I am looking for any Republican candidate, anyone, who will not take a trip to Mar-a-Lago. Short of that, I'll be voting for Evers. Well, I, I think everybody's taking a trip to Mar-a-Lago, and I think that they pretty much all have. I don't think that Trump is necessarily going to play in this particular election because, you know, I think he has a decent relationship with all of them. So what, what are the dynamics here? Well, I think, first of all, to me, the, the big loser— out of the announcement today is Kevin Nicholson. And I, Kevin Nicholson was running as kind of the, Rebecca Clayfish, although I, I don't know that I would consider her to be like this institutional Republican, Rebecca Clayfish has the support of— the, the Republican hierarchy, and, and that 's because you know she's she 's done the work over the last several years. she did the work as Lieutenant Governor, so as far if to the extent that there is an organized republican party structure that that structure I think is supporting Rebecca Clayfish in part because of her stand on the issues and in part because she in part because she 's a known commodity. Kevin Nicholson was running as the alternative to that, and Kevin Nicholson was running as the guy who was. You know, taking shots at the Republican establishment, et cetera, et cetera. He was trying, I think, to set him up as the the self up as the outsider. Whether that was succeeding or not, don't know. Whether he would have had enough money to break through, I, I don't know. But the presence of Tim Michaels, I, I think, clearly hurts Kevin Nicholson because now you have an alternative to Rebecca Clayfish, who I think many people still believe is is the leading candidate. Plus, you have a candidate who is, has deep pockets. Got a compelling sort of backstory, who is a, a part of Wisconsin, you know, runs a business, all those sort of things, and did I mention has deep pockets, so is going to be able to spend whatever amount of money he wants to spend in order to get his message out. And I guess I just don't see, given Michaels' involvement in the race and the fact that he's not going to have a problem with money, I, I don't see what, where that leaves Nicholson and where his slice of the vote is as if it was just essentially the two of them. And yeah, I understand I'm discounting the guy, the state rep who's running on the let's frog march Joe Biden out of office because I don't think that's a serious campaign. So, but this... Nicholson was running as the alternative candidate this I think minimizes and marginalizes his position which is why I have suggested all along I think this was a poor race for him I think he should have concentrated on running against Tammy Baldwin in two years from now if he wanted to get involved with that so I think he's the clear loser in this then you've got the whole question about Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish and to me I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out I don't think it's going to be a scorched-earth campaign. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's going to be a scorched-earth campaign. But I think a lot of Republican voters are going to be looking at at one thing and one thing only. And that thing is, who has the best chance to beat Tony Evers in November? And what are those issues? As I have been saying for the longest time, I think think Republicans— Regardless of how you feel about the stolen election or whatever, I think the candidates need to move away from that because I don't think that that's the issue that is going to ultimately move the needle among the type of people that you're going to need. Look, I mean, I understand there's 25 percent of the Republican voters or whatever who believe that the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. They're going to vote for Republicans anyways. If you're going to win a general election, you need – you know, somebody that's going to have a compelling message. And th- this this year is ripe for this. You, you look at, you know, all the COVID stuff. You look at the problems with unemployment claims. You look at the problems with the economy. Uh, there are so many different substantive issues that candidates can run on that you hope that they don't get distracted about, gee, what's the latest thing with the Gableman investigation or, or whatever, which to me is, is kind of a, a loser sort of issue. So I, I think Tim Michaels becomes a player. If Tim Michaels is committed to spending an unlimited amount of money, And getting his name out, he he really becomes a player. I still think it's Rebecca Clayfish's race to lose, but I, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting race. I hope the candidates decide to focus on the issues. And candidly, I'm not sure that there's that much disagreement between them substantively on the various issues. To me, it's going to be all about who presents this, who gets their message out. I would not be surprised if it is a relatively close race. Who's going to win? Don't know. Don't have to make a prediction until right before the primary in August, and I'll keep my powder dry until then. But there's no question that the entry of Tim Michaels into this race does change the dynamics in a couple different ways. Jane Metanier is a fellow Wisconsinite. Growing up here, you will be able to appreciate this. Do you remember American TV? Crazy TV Lenny. Crazy TV Lenny. Yeah, for for people and— it it just it's this is another one of these businesses that you thought would be around forever. But um, American TV used to be American TV in Madison, and it started out as an appliance and electronics store out, out of out of Madison. It was run by a guy who who really started um, Len Mattioli, I believe was the name, and and he developed this persona, as you were saying. Crazy TV Lenny. Right, and he'd, he'd, he'd be, you know, and it, it was kind of a takeoff on, on some of the other, this is back in the 70s and stuff, where, you know, he'd, he'd be doing his own TV commercials, and come on in, and we got this on sale, and that on sale. But the truth was, people used to drive. I mean, I can remember when when I was in college or law school, people would drive to Madison to buy, like, stereo equipment and stuff. That was the, that was the legend of this, and he then turned American TV. It it expanded. It was in a number of different states, and they had stores that were all over. I mean, there were several American TV stores that were here. He ended up selling the business in two thousand nine and he was gonna he was going to retire. Um but he he couldn't stay retired. The reason I'm bring he couldn't stay retired because he was retired for a couple of years and then he got back into the e bike business. And so he's been running an e bike store out wow. of out of Madison I did not know that. for Crazy Lenny's electric bikes. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> is he crazy hey lengthy. I
2: worked for him all this time
1: well the right the, now the reason I, I bring this up is because um, he's just he sold his interest in that he's going to be 79 years old and he just he, he, he sort of announced there's a big story in the Madison papers about this he just announced that hey I'm 79 years old I just I don't have the energy to work 10 hours a day six days a week in, in retail and stuff so he sold his interest in the bikes and is now going to you know officially go into retirement at the age of 80 but it's it just, it's another one of these things where you, you just can't describe how big American TV was, at, at least at a certain point in time.
2: It was the place to go. And I remember very specifically, uh, I had been living in Minnesota after uh, going to, to school up there, and I came down here to visit someone. And the first time I heard him on the television was. I had never heard anything like that before. It's like, who is this man and why is he yelling at me about
1: television? <laughs> right. But, okay, remember in a couple of our listeners. remember what, what the big thing was? He, they would give away 10-speed bikes. Remember, it was always buy a TV, get a, get bike. a bike. Buy it right. Buy buy a washing machine, get a bike. Buy a stereo, get a bike. <laughs> he if, must
2: have had a good line on a bunch of cheap bikes.
1: Oh, well, that I I don't know, Jeff. My wife and I got a free bike each when we bought a bed, a sofa, a table, and chairs. Get a bike. Get a bike. Get a bike. <laughs> Remember right. all that? That's right. <laughs> this, but I mean, and again, it, I understand if if you're not of a certain age, you're listen. Well, what was this thing? But it was, it, it was sort of a takeoff because there were a couple. There, there were a couple of other, like, appliance-slash-salesmen who, who created this persona, I know, in New York and New Jersey, and you'd see some of these. But, but he was just huge here. But it was really – it was almost this cult of personality. It was his personality, I think, that turned these that, – that, that took what would be a little appliance store in Madison and, and made it certainly a regional hit. Well, it certainly got your attention. You know what I mean? You heard a couple of those spots, and you would never forget who had the TVs and where you could get a free bike. Get a bike, get a bike, get a bike. Yeah. So in any event he he he, he went back he, he couldn't stay retired. That, this is the, see, this is the thing when when people talk about retirement and you know, it's kinda like Tommy Thompson. Tommy Thompson is never gonna retire. I, I don't know what Tommy Thompson is gonna do next, but he's he's just incapable of retiring. Crazy TV Lenny was was exactly the same kind of guy, and and you know he reached a point where okay, you're you're pushing eighty years old, maybe you can't keep up that pace, but you know you know Janie, he's going to have some business that it's going to be. I admire those people. I am the complete opposite, as I am intrinsically lazy. So <laughs> once I retire, I will not be coming back. <laughs> okay, well well, hopefully that won't be for a long time. Days like this where I just really love this job because I was talking about like crazy TV Lenny and stuff and I'm and, and being swamped with texts and emails from people who have their own recollections. Now, I didn't grow up in Madison. I grew up around here. But apparently... There was this thing. Okay, you remember like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you'd have her name. because Her name is Cassandra Peterson, and and Elvira would show like like these really cheesy B horror movies and things like that. Well, they had version. She went national, but they had versions of that all over. And I guess I didn't realize this, but in Madison, from like the late sixties until 1982, they had their own version of the late night B horror movies with a character called Mephisto. But the show was called Lenny's Inferno, and it was the, the crazy TV. Lenny. they apparently sponsored it, so like American TV sponsored it until like nineteen eighty two, and everybody has these fond recollections of this. It's just it's amazing how you know we, we touch people's lives in those various ways. Waterstone Bank and WTMJ Steve Scafidi are once again partnering partnering to recognize. The heroes in our community—police officers, firefighters, healthcare providers, and countless others—help every day to protect our families. They're the first on the scene where, when critical accidents and unfortunate events occur. Do you know a first responder that deserves recognition recognition for their duties? Well, then head to wtmj.com and make your nomination now. And please hurry—the nomination period ends May 13th. It's Waterstone Bank's Salute to Service on News Radio WTMJ. All right. Now, before the break, I said, get a sandwich, get a sandwich, get a sandwich. Because that that, that whole like crazy TV Lenny and American TV that took a small appliance slash stereo store out of Madison and turned it into, you know, 15 stores in multiple states and, and really made it, you know, a household name, at least for a while. It was due to, you know, great marketing, but it was also due to, you know, a, a great product. You know, they, they were able to, to to touch a nerve. I was thinking about that because there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today about this battle that's being fought in Santa Barbara, California. Hear me out, though, about Chick-fil-A. Now, we have a number of Chick-fil-A restaurants around here. There's one in Oak Creek. There's one in in Brookfield, just west of 124th Street. Whenever I drive past that, that road, going out Capitol Drive, like if I'm going out to see friends or relatives who who live in the Pewaukee area, I always go past that Chick-fil-A that's out there just a little bit west of 124th and Capitol. And it doesn't matter pretty much what time of the day or night it is, the place is always packed. They've got like I want to say it's like four lines of drive-through windows, and 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 it's always it's it's just backed up. Matter of fact, a lot of times the traffic even backs up in the street. You you've got people that are sitting in line for it. Looks like I mean I think they do a pretty good job of moving people through it, but but they're there, you know, ten or fifteen minutes waiting in line to to get. the the thing that Chick-fil-A is offering. I was thinking about that because there's a story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, Santa Barbara, California, they they just opened up a a -A, Chick-fil-A location. It's actually been there for for a couple years. But what's happening is a lot of the officials uh, and people in the neighborhood are complaining because the lot is just absolutely packed and there's long lines at the drive through and you have people who are willing to wait 15 or 20 minutes to get, you know, to get served. And what's happening is there's so many of those people that the traffic is, is backing up out on the street, and you have a, a number of neighbors and some city officials who are complaining that, hey, that the traffic is backing out on the street and it's causing a problem. The flip side is you've got pretty much everybody that loves Chick-fil-A. And so it started this little bit of a war about, yeah, okay, Yes, we understand that the cars back up on the street, but the truth of the matter is, it's worth it. So the argument is kind of get over yourself and just live with it because we want to have our our chick fillet, and it's almost gotten to this point of of having a cult status to it. But what's going on in Santa Barbara, unlike you know what I see on a regular basis, again at, at the one located in in Brookfield. Um, Eight, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I don't know what the lines are like at the, the one they've located in Oak Creek. But again, my sense is this is something that is incredibly, incredibly popular. And they, they're obviously doing something right. You have some businesses that are incredibly successful. And we talk about Quick Trip on this program from time to time, which is, you know, it started, what, in lacrosse, And now, you know, Quick Trip has had this incredible growth, and it's really become entrenched. And it's a success story in a very, very competitive market. Chick-fil-A appears to be in pretty much the same situation that you're writing stories in the Wall Street Journal about how it's so very popular that they've got too many cars that are all lined up and people being willing to wait 10, 15, 20 minutes to get a fast food sandwich. Now, I have to tell you, I'm kind of impatient by nature. I'm not sure there's too much you know, that I'd wait 10, 15, 20 minutes for, particularly when it comes to fast food. But people are willing to do that for Chick-fil-A. So- what is its secret? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Why are people willing to to line up? Why are people willing to wait fifteen or twenty minutes? Why are people willing? I mean, I don't know about you, but if there's a line for something and I'm driving in to the restaurant and, and there's five or six or seven cars in line in front of me, chances are I'm probably going to say I'm going to go to some. I'm going somewhere else with Chick Fil A. It, it, the lines could be 30 deep, and people are still getting in and waiting for the food. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Carrie in Greenfield. Carrie, you're first. Good afternoon. Carrie. Oh, hi, Jeff. Can you hear me? I can.
2: What's hi, it, hi, Jeff. Can you, oh, hi. Yes, we have a, I'm in Greenfield, and we have a Chick-fil-A off of 76th Street by Southridge, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Any time of the day you go there... It's busy. The drive through is always long, but they do move the cars through fairly quickly, and my kids just love their spicy chicken filet sandwiches.
1: Okay. you can, It's just uh, a popular place. Well, what, Carrie, but what, what is the, the – I mean, my guess is you can get good chicken sandwiches at all sorts of places. What, what do you think it is about Chick-fil-A that makes it so special that people are willing to wait in line for 15 minutes or, or however long?
2: It just be, it's just because it's like real chicken. Like you get a, the, even their grilled chicken breast sandwich – Deluxe is really good. It's just like a real chicken breast.
1: It's not It's better, it's yeah. It's
2: just better. It's just better qual it's, it's better quality, most definitely. Yeah, no,
1: thanks Nicole. That that that's it. You know, and I, I don't I don't go to fast food places very often and there's not a Chick fil A by where I live. So I don't I don't think I've ever Gone, I mean, I've, I've had Chick-fil-A sandwiches because they brought them to the station and things like that. I don't think I've ever actually gone through a Chick-fil-A drive through If I have, I, I don't remember when I ended up doing it. But I, I obviously, I, I know that th- they've figured out how to build that better mousetrap. Let's talk to Zach. Zach, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
0: Hi, Jeff. I think, you know, you take a great product and you add phenomenal customer service. And I think that's something that Quick Trip does, and it's something that Chick Fil A does. That, that that both companies have going for them, and I think we shouldn't miss the fact that both of these companies are run by Christians, people that are that are openly Christian, and it's something that does kind of overlap into their business.
1: Yeah, no, uh, right. I mean, thanks to no Chick Fil A. Well. No Chick-fil-A on Sunday. They're they're closed here. Jeff, is this any different than In-N-Out Burger in California? They're exactly the same. Well, they're they're not the same as far as product, but yeah, In-N-Out Burger, and we've talked about this before. In-N-Out Burger, and they don't have them in here. It it's it's almost got a cult status, and if you ever. Are in a place they started in Southern California, but they've got an In-N-Out Burger in Vegas and things like that. If you ever go past this, long lines. People are just people just absolutely love them. Uh, In-N-Out Burger to me, I'm I'm not they're they're good. I'm not sure I'd wait in line for 20 minutes, but I like I said, I'm not sure I'd wait in line for 20 minutes for anything. What is the appeal here that the Wall Street Journal is writing about? How they put in a Chick Fil A and all the neighbors are upset because it's so popular. And that popularity appears to sustain itself. Um, Back with more in just a minute. See, now, the interesting part about this story is you've got some politicians who are like looking at Chick-fil-A and saying, "Okay, well, we, you know, they've got a we, we want to kind of crack down on them because they've got so many cars that are in this lot. And at the same time, they're also afraid to do that because. There's all these cars and a lot. It's incredibly popular. Obviously, Chick-fil-A has touched a nerve, not just around here, but like nationwide. Uh, Here's one of our texts. Jeff, I have this argument with my two sons. I just don't get it. It's a freaking chicken sandwich. However, they absolutely love the place. Let's talk to Steve in Salkville. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Steve.
0: Uh, I heard that you can only own one. So every franchiser puts their all into their location,
2: mm-hmm.
0: has to maximize the profit. So that's probably why the uh, service is so good, yeah. I think.
1: Well, my guess is, th- thanks for calling. Now, I, I have to I gotta be careful here because a very good friend of mine, his family owns 49 McDonald's. I keep telling him you'll be a big deal when you own fifty. That, that's my and his name is Steve as well. I said Steve, you'll be a big deal when you own fifty. They own forty nine McDonald's and I think you know he would probably say no. We, we put our all into all the franchises. The, the thing that that does is that there there aren't anywhere near as many say Chick Fil A's as there are Arby's or you know Burger Kings or, or McDonald's. And I, I do get the sense that they're probably extremely. Selective in their expansion and and where you can find them, um, one of the texters was reminding me that apparently they 're going to be putting one in, in in Glendale and I think on port washington road there 's one in manami falls you 've got the one in Oak creek but but they are more like destinations, and my guess is that there 's all sorts of research that goes into figuring out where we 're going to um, open up um something. Jeff, I I don't get the fascination with Chick-fil-A either. I think Popeyes is much better. It's been a long time since I've had Popeyes. Jeff Culver's is like that also. Good food, courteous service, and a clean restaurant. Yeah, I mean Culver's is another one of these that inspires in incredible Loyalty in the, the customers, um, Jeff. Once uh, Chick Fil A opens, you're going to see a lot more car traffic. Jeff, what did Yogi Berra say? Nobody goes there anymore because it's too crowded. <laughs> that's the, um, that's it. Jeff, I think Chick Fil A has very long lines because they don't have as many locations like McDonald's, for example. You know, McDonald's may have over five to ten restaurants for every Chick Fil A add up all those cars in the McDonald's drive-through and arrival what you see at that one Chick-fil-A well yeah but people are willing to wait longer and longer I will tell you I mean if I if I had pulled into a, a McDonald's drive-through and I saw 15 cars in line I don't even care if they're giving away those McRib sandwiches. I'm I'm not going to wait. On the other hand, people are obviously willing to wait to go to the Chick-fil-A's because they figured this out. Jeff, I think there's three reasons why people wait for Chick-fil-A. Number one, the employees are kind and courteous. Number two, their product is good. And number three, they always get their orders right. You can wait the same amount of time at many other fast food places, and often your food is cold, or half your order is wrong, or it's missing. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's, that, that is that's always the challenge, is how you figure out how to get it right. And it, it's become more of a challenge, especially with the, the great resignations and the pandemics and things of the like. Because all these fast food places have the same issues that pretty much everybody else has is, is where where are you going to find the help and and who are you going to get the staff to drive through and who are you going to cook find to cook the stuff and all and I know it 's an ongoing challenge, and then you know you once you find somebody and once you hire them and I have a number of friends who own businesses who tell this story it 's not just finding somebody it 's not just hiring them it 's getting them to show up day 1 after you've hired them and it's getting them to come back day 2 or day 3. So it's it's an ongoing challenge that I think all these places have. Jeff, in my experience, I think at Chick-fil-A the food is average, but the customer service is top-notch. Still not enough for me to wait in a crazy long line, but, you know, I, I understand that customer service. You know, no question, you know, about it That's that there is that thing. Jeff, you need to try it out in person. The service is phenomenal. The food is always fresh and hot. The waffle fries are awesome. Okay, well, there you go. So, bottom line is, if you're driving past one of the Chick-fil-A's in our area and you see those long lines and you're thinking, oh, is is this something weird about us in southeastern Wisconsin that we're willing to wait in these long lines? No, this is happening all over the country. Whatever the recipe is, whether it's service, whether it's product, I also think one of the things Chick-fil-A does is they don't dilute the menu. I mean, you go to Chick-fil-A, you want a milkshake, you want a chicken sandwich or some variation of it. it. It's not... I mean, they know what they do well, and they emphasize that. But if you see these long lines and you think it's unique to southeastern Wisconsin, au contraire, it's going on all over the country. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around.